Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Happy Friday and welcome to chapter 23 of book one of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The Theory of Oliver. In praise of the Reverend Dr. George Oliver, as a learned and fertile writer on Freemasonry, too much cannot be said. His name must be Clarum et Venerable, shining and honored, among the craft. To the study of the history and the philosophy of the institution, he brought a store of scholarly acquirements and a familiarity with ancient and modern literature, which had been possessed by no Masonic author who had preceded him. Even Hutchinson, who certainly occupied the central and most elevated point in the circle of Masonic students and investigators who flourished in the 18th century, must yield the palm for research to him whose knowledge of books seemed without limits. With his many works on Freemasonry, of which it is difficult to specify the most important, the most learned, or the most interesting, Dr. Oliver raised the Masonic institution to a point of elevation which it had never before reached, and to which its most ardent admirers had never expected to promote it. He loved it for its social aims, for he was genial in his inclination and in his habits, and he cherished its principles of brotherly love, for his heart was as large as his mind. But he taught that within its chain of union there was a fund of ethics and philosophy, and a beautiful science of symbolism by which its ethics were developed to the initiated. He awakened scholars to see the fact never before so completely demonstrated that speculative Freemasonry claimed and was entitled to a leading place among the systems of human philosophy. No longer could men say that Freemasonry was merely a club of good fellows. Oliver proved that it was a school of inquirers after the truth. No longer could critics charge that its only design was the cultivation of kindly feelings and the enjoyment of good cheer. He showed plainly that Freemasonry was engaged in making known to its initiates the deep and difficult subjects in religion and philosophy in a method by which it surpassed every other human plan for teaching such knowledge. But, notwithstanding this high praise, every word of which is merited by its subject, and not one word of which we would grudge or omit, it must be confessed that there were two defects in his character that materially affect the value of his authority as a historian. One fault was that as a clergyman of the Church of England, he was controlled by that clerical association or comradeship which inclined him to make every opinion give way to the views of his own sect. Thus, he gave to every symbol, every myth, every allegory the explanation of a theologian rather than of a philosopher. The other defect, a far more important one, was that he gave way to a belief on slight evidence that led him to freely accept the errors of tradition as the truths of history. When reading one of his discussions, it is often difficult to separate the two elements. He so glosses the sober facts of history with the fanciful coloring of legendary lore that the reader finds himself entangled in a knotted net of authentic history intermixed with unsupported tradition, where he finds it impossible to clearly see the truths among the fables. Of course, the canon or test of criticism laid down by Voltaire, that all historical claim of certainty that does not amount to a mathematical proof is merely extreme probability, is far too strict. 
There are many facts that depend only on general testimony to which no more precise demonstration is applied and which yet leave the strong impression of certainty on the mind. Here, as in all other things, there is a happy medium, a measure of moderation, and it would have been well if Dr. Oliver had observed it. This he did not do. His theory is founded not simply on the legend of the craft, of which he takes but little account, but on little-known legends and traditions taken by him in the course of his studious and varied reading, sometimes from Jewish authors and sometimes from unknown sources. Dr. Oliver's theories as to the origin and progress of Freemasonry from a legendary point of view are so scattered in his various works that it is difficult to follow them in a logical order. This is especially the case with the legends that relate to the periods following the building of the Temple of Jerusalem. Up to that era, the theory is set forth in his Antiquities on Freemasonry. Upon the contents of this book, we shall principally depend in this digest of Dr. Oliver's arguments. This work was, it is true, written in the earlier part of his life, and was his first addition to the literature of Freemasonry, but he did not, in any of his later writings, alter the opinions he then held. This work may therefore be considered, as far as it goes, as an accurate and fair showing of his theory. Dr. Oliver's historical landmarks, the most learned and most interesting of his works, if we accept perhaps its history of initiation, will furnish many suggestions on what he has advanced in his antiquities. But as it is mainly devoted to an inquiry into the origin and meaning of the symbols and allegories of Freemasonry, we cannot obtain from its pages a good grasp of his theory. Preston had introduced his history of Freemasonry by the claim that its foundations might be traced from the commencement of the world. Dr. Oliver is not content with so remote an origin, but asserts on the authority of Masonic traditions that the science existed before the creation of this globe and was diffused amidst the numerous systems with which the Grand Imperium, or the Highest Heaven, a classical term for the skies, of universal space is furnished. But, as he supposes that the other globes of the universe were inhabited long before the Earth was peopled, and that these inhabitants must have possessed a system of ethics founded on the belief in God, which he claims is nothing else but speculative Freemasonry, we may regard this opinion as merely the same as saying that truth is eternal. Passing by this imperial or sky notion of his as a mere philosophical idea, let us begin with Oliver's theory of the world's origin of the science of Freemasonry. While in the Garden of Eden, Adam was taught that science which is now termed Freemasonry. After his fall, he lost the gift of inspiration, but certainly kept a recollection of those degrees of knowledge which are within the reach of human capacity, and among them that speculative science now known as Freemasonry. These, in the course of time, Adam taught to his family. Of these children, Seth and his descendants preserved and cultivated the principles of Freemasonry which had been received from Adam but Cain and his people misused them and finally cast them aside. However, before this had occurred, the latter, with some of his descendants, reduced the knowledge he had received from Adam to practice and build a city which he called Hanok. The children of Lamech, the sixth in descent from Cain, also retained some faint rem remains of Freemasonry, which they used for the benefit of mankind. This is the way that Dr. Oliver tries to adjust the story of the children of Lamech as detailed in The Legend of the Craft with his theory which really puts Cain and all his descendants outside the boundary limits of the field of Freemasonry. The sons of Lamech were Freemasons, but their Freemasonry had become impure. Dr. Oliver makes the usual division of Freemasonry into operative and speculative. The former continued to be used by the Cainites after they had lost all claim upon the latter, and the first practical application of the art by them was in the building of the city of Hanok, or as it is called in Genesis, Enoch. 
Freemasonry was thus divided as to its history into two distinct streams, that of the operative and that of the speculative. The former was cultivated by the descendants of Cain, the latter by those of Seth. It does not, however, appear that the operative branch was altogether neglected by the Sethites, but was only made second to their speculative science, while the latter was entirely neglected by the Cainites, who devoted themselves altogether to the operative art. Finally, they gave up that and were lost in the general decline of their race, which led to their destruction in the flood. But the speculative stream flowed on without a halt to the time of Noah. Oliver does not hesitate to say that Seth, associating himself with the most virtuous men of his age, they formed lodges and discussed the great principles of masonry, and were called by the people of their time, the Sons of Light. Seth continued to preside over the craft until the time of Enoch, when he appointed that patriarch to succeed him and became the Grand Superintendent. Enoch, as Grand Master, practiced Freemasonry with such effect that God was moved to make known to him some peculiar mysteries. Among these secrets was the sacred word that continues to this day to form an important part of Masonic speculation, and for the preservation of it from the coming destruction of the world, he constructed an underground room where he concealed the sacred treasure. He also erected two pillars, one of brass and one of stone, on which he engraved the elements of the liberal sciences, including Freemasonry. Enoch then resigned the government of the craft to Lamech, who afterwards gave it up to Noah, in whose hands it remained until the time of the flood. Such is Oliver's legendary story of the progress of Freemasonry from the creation to the flood. The craft was at that time organized into lodges and governed during that long period by only five grand masters, Adam, Seth, Enoch, Lamech, and Noah. To the institution existing during the years before the flood, he gives the appropriate title of antediluvian masonry and also that of primitive masonry. In the consideration of its character, he is of the opinion that it had but a few symbols or ceremonies, and was indeed nothing else but a system of morals of pure religion. The great object that it had in view was to preserve and cherish the promise of a Messiah, a coming Savior of the world. During the revival of the world, after the passing away of the waters of the deluge, it was found that Enoch's pillar of brass had given way before the torrents of destruction. But happily, the pillar of stone had been preserved. By this means, the knowledge of the state of Freemasonry before the flood was handed down to those who came afterwards. Of the sons of Noah, all of whom had been taught the pure system of Freemasonry by their father, Shem, and his people alone preserved it. Ham and Japheth, having dispersed into Africa and Europe, their descendants became worshippers of idols and lost the true principles of Freemasonry, which consisted in a knowledge and reverence of the one true God. The followers of Japheth not only fell away from the worship of God and began the adoration of idols, but they broke down the form of Freemasonry by the establishment on the basis of a system of secret rites, which are known in history as the Mysteries. This secession or departure of the children of Japheth from the true system which their father had received from Noah has been called by Dr. Oliver spurious Freemasonry. That practiced by the descendants of Shem he styles pure Freemasonry. Of these two divisions, the spurious Freemasons were more distinguished for their cultivation of the operative art, while the pure Freemasons, although not entirely neglectful of operative Freemasonry, particularly devoted themselves to the preservation of the truths of the speculative science. Shem handed the secrets of pure Freemasonry to Abraham, through whose descendants they were taught to Moses, who had, however, been previously initiated into the spurious or false Freemasonry of the Egyptians. Freemasonry, which had suffered a decay during the captivity of the Israelites in Egypt, was revived in the wilderness by Moses. 
He held the General Assembly and, as the first act of the reorganized institution, erected the tabernacle. From this time, Freemasonry was almost entirely confined to the Jewish nation and was taught through its judges, priests, and kings, even to the time of Solomon. When Solomon was about to erect the temple at Jerusalem, he called to his help the experts and artists of Tyre, who were students and disciplines of the spurious Freemasonry and were skillful architects as members of the Dionysiac Brotherhood of Artificers and Workmen. This active association of the Tyrian Freemasons of the spurious order with the Jewish workmen who practiced the pure system brought about a union of the two classes and King Solomon in due course reorganized the system of Freemasonry as it now exists. To explain the spread of Freemasonry throughout the world and its firm and lasting establishment in England, Dr. Oliver adopts the legendary histories of both Anderson and Preston, accepting as genuine every mythical story in every manuscript. From the Leland manuscript, he quotes as if he were citing an authority universally admitted to be trustworthy and accurate. Receiving the account of the General Assembly, which was called at York by Prince Edwin, as an event of whose occurrence there can be no possible doubt, he claims that the Hallowell or Regius poem is a true copy of the Constitution's made law by that assembly. Discussing the subject of the religious character of Freemasonry, Dr. Oliver in the main agrees with Hutchinson that it is a Christian institution and that all its myths and symbols have a Christian meaning. He differs from Hutchinson in this particular that instead of limiting the introduction of the Christian element to the time of Christ, he supposes that to have existed in it from the earliest times. Even the Freemasonry of the patriarchs he believes to have been based upon the accepted belief in a promised Messiah. These views will be best expressed in his own language, and they are found in a passage contained in the concluding pages of his historical landmarks. And the quote is, The conclusion is therefore obvious. If the lectures of Freemasonry refer only to events which preceded the advent of Christ, and if those events consist exclusively of admitted types of the great Deliverer, who was preordained to become a voluntary sacrifice for the salvation of mankind, it will clearly follow that the order was originally instituted in accordance with the true principles of the Christian religion, and in all its consecutive steps bears an unerring testimony to the truth of the facts and their typical reference to the founder of our faith." Unquote. He said, still more positively, in an earlier part of the same book, that, quote, Freemasonry contains scarcely a single ceremony, symbol, or historical narration which does not apply to this glorious consummation of the divine economy of the Creator towards his erring creatures." Unquote. By the reference to economy, he, of course, means the Christian order of things in the world and the Christian plan of salvation. The proposition will hardly meet with a denial that in all these various essays upon the subject, Dr. Oliver held that in the very earliest ages of the world, there prevailed certain religious truths of vast importance to the welfare and happiness of mankind. These, he held, had been communicated either by direct inspiration or in some other mode. These foundation truths he believed to have been brought down by the means of tradition to the present day. All these truths principally consisted in an assertion of a belief in God and in a future life. If Dr. Oliver also meant to claim that the task of bringing these truths to posterity and to the present age was committed to and preserved by an order of men, an association or a society whose form and features have been retained in Freemasonry to the present day, it will, we imagine, be admitted that such a proposition is wholly out of the question. Yet this appears to be the theory that was held by this learned but too easily convinced scholar. Thank you for listening. 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.